0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the latest episode of the Broken Laws Podcast. And before we start, um, with myself and my esteemed colleague, Dr. Aaron Jackson, I would just like to appeal to the better angels of your nature. Um, Unlike many things on the internet, making a podcast is not actually completely free, and there are expenses that we do incur and if you are enjoying the podcast content and you would like to help us make more podcasts of a higher quality and a more in-depth nature as we are planning to do, we would be hugely grateful, um, as we are hugely grateful to the people who've already done this, if you could contribute to our Buy Me A Coffee website, and the link will be below in the description, where you can click on the link and you can, for the price of a coffee, help support podcast as per usual I will say thank you to everyone who's already used this feature and I would encourage anybody who's thinking of supporting a pod like this because we are we believe in providing value to our listeners um you don't just have to buy us a coffee you can actually purchase one of the two training plans that are there and I think by the end of september there will be three training plans and there will be a useful widget for predicting your scores based on other pieces that you've done so please have a look at the link, see if there's anything there of use to you but that's the primary coffee function so dr aaron jackson otherwise known as northern one what are we going to be talking about today well This
1: is gonna be part of our Welcome Back to Rowing series. So everyone out there who has small children, which is, you know, essentially Loon and I, and we are still essentially small children in many ways ourselves, will have seen gathering pace from Easter onwards, back to school adverts, Get the school uniform, because it's time to go back to school. Get the new protractor set, because it's time to go back to school. Buy the new school bag and school, to school shoes, and get the preschool haircut, because it's back to school time. September means back to school, but it also means back to rowing. Now rowing hasn't stopped in July and August. It's continued uh, in many wonderful and exciting ways. One of us has tried um, a form of coastal rowing and will never be doing it again. But we are doing a series on back back to rowing what should you look for and back to rowing and in this particular episode we're going to talk about coaching what you can expect from a coach what a coach is what you should do for your coach what your coach should do for you but before we get into that i have a couple of quick questions and I, I'm trying not to set up anything humorous because as anyone who knows me knows, I have literally no sense of humor. It was surgically removed when I was in Sheffield along with my tonsils and my pancreas. Lewin, why why do we refer to each other as our esteemed colleagues when your usual comment about me is that one with the shit 2K score?
0: Um, who didn't pull hard enough on the RP3 to make it float. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think you are my esteemed colleague in this venture. You, you do have a great deal of esteem. You have rowed at Henley. You have a collection of degrees um, of a higher nature, and you are fundamentally a rower. And therefore, not only are you an Englishman and a rower, you have twice won the first prize in lottery of life.
1: I think that the last point is the crucial one there. It's very nice of you to say all those things about you, but essentially we are both rowers. And as anyone knows, and anyone listening to this knows, if you are a rower, you are fundamentally a decent person. There are very few TWATSs in the world and sport of rowing.
0: We tend to run them out of town on a rail. Um, Can I just just say this? This is actually a strange thing. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to disagree with you that strongly. But a very, very good friend of mine who shall remain remain nameless to protect the innocent did point out to me that one of the things that rowers and rowing clubs are not necessarily very good at is making a distinction between someone being a good rower and someone being a good person. and. I don't think this has really got anything to do with the rest of the pod, but I think it's actually a very, very valid piece of advice for all people involved in the sport of rowing and particularly involved in the administration of clubs is that everybody's bona fides should be checked and simply rocking up with a history of being a good rower or a history of having. An excellent 2K score or winning many races does not necessarily, the correlation is quite good, but it doesn't necessarily make that person somebody you want in your social circle or your community
1: i think it's a fair point you have to look beyond the 2k score although it is always the first question that we ask in any club before what is your name where do you come from who are your parents and what side do you row on what score is it what score have you got yeah having having a good 2k score does not necessarily correlate to being a good human being but yeah so basically check out the bona fides
0: the yeah, second- so, so maybe it should be what's your 2k score and are you want to register
1: yeah, or, or what's your two K score, and where do you stand on the Boethian concept of good and evil as applied to working with small children in the junior squad? Some some
0: kind, there's some formulation there that we can work on, I'm sure. Given that we are discussion coaching and by extension coaches, yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to add a caveat to literally everything I'm going to say in this podcast about coaching and coaches, which is insert your own, not all coaches, right? Because I'm going to say probably some fairly stern things. No, I am right. And I'm going to say these are examples and possibly individual examples of where I do not feel that I have been coached particularly well, and i would add that they those examples do not necessarily apply in their entirety to all coaches or, or roaring coaches and they don't necessarily at the same time if i'm saying i don't believe this is good coaching practice and this was done to me that coach might be listening i'm possibly exaggerating our reach but that doesn't nope. necessarily make that coach a bad person or even a bad coach
1: Indeed, and and we're not going to say that the reason why we're adding this caveat in is because you were bitten by a Dennis O'Neill as a small child. Um, We're going to put it in because we are building a picture of of coaching, a a Rembrandt's night watch, if you will, where where there is gonna be a lot of detail and some quite impressionistic pieces, but some quite detailed pieces as well. Um, So insert as applicable here, I think that's an important caveat. The second question I had is not coaching related music related are you aware of the irish band thin lizzy
0: unfortunately yes
1: okay are you aware of their song jailbreak which has that wonderful kind of guitar dun 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 you know very exciting riff at the start
0: yeah i could uh, i'd recognize it but it came on i'm and, not and,
1: right it came on the radio um just before we came on and phil in it you know who was a wonderful front man in many many ways and a complete heroin addict in others. One of the lines is, tonight there's going to be a jailbreak somewhere in this town. Would common sense suggest that it's going to be at the jail? It would. You've just thought of this, haven't you, Aaron? It just really resonated. Tonight there's going to be but, a jailbreak
0: somewhere in the know. town. No, it's not going to be somewhere in this town. It's like, it's either going to be at the jail or at the police station, and that's it. Pretty much which
1: you know goes to show that rock lyrics sometimes aren't really all that i guess
0: yes anyway let's talk about coaching so first of all what is a coach erin do you want me to say what i think it should be or
1: what my experience of it has been
0: um why don't you go what you think it should be possibly we should touch on what it is actually legally defined to be in our own context
2: yeah, and
0: what that necessarily means for the like people out there. But why don't you like dive in? It's like, what do you think coach should be?
1: I think that a coach should be something of a teacher or a mentor in a particular field or discipline, who either equips you with um, essential elemental skills at the start of your journey, or who. Helps you to achieve certain things by giving you the skills to achieve the things that you might set yourself as a target or a goal or an objective. Or would that be a bit kind of flannelly to say it, or is that?
0: I think. Well, I think actually there is there's quite a lot of flannel because you know, particularly the. I I think the idea of a teacher, the coach as a teacher, is very very important, um, particularly at the earliest stages of being a rower when. Mm because unlike most, nearly everybody knows how to run. Mm. Most people were taught how to cycle at a very young age, probably by their parents or maybe an elder sibling, something like that. And by the time any sort of meaningful coaching of their cycling can be done, they more or less kind of know how to cycle. Cycling, it's getting on your bike and it's going. And then coaching is all about the extra bits behind that. Rowing, as Punny Pete once said to us, is very unique amongst racing sports in the fact that most people who come to the sport can be adults or like quite mature in comparison. And they will have... Literally no idea of how to do rowing, so you have to be taught, you have to be taught the sequence
2: mm-hmm. because
0: otherwise, you're going to try and row a boat like you're a gym rower on the Ergo, yeah. and it's not going to work very well.
1: So, a coach in rowing terms and in broad sporting terms as well is, is at the start of your journey helps you to learn, understand, master the basic skill sets, yep. and then if you continue through that journey, a coach is someone who helps you to maximize any, and I hate to use the word talent because we're in 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 the middle of a discussion on our Twitter thread about what talent actually is and what talent actually isn't, but a coach helps you maximize your abilities to Take you as far as you can go within the within the abilities that you have.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, and and so yeah, there's coach as a teacher first of all, and then there's coach as a guide to a direction that arguably that coach could never reach themselves. If you see what I mean.
1: Yes can i ask a parenthetical question mm-hmm. and i'm just throwing that word in after the thin lizzy debacle to show that i do have some brain cells left um should a coach should a coach therefore be the same person at every stage of your journey your your beginning your the beginning of your journey the middle of your journey or, or, or let's say you go on and you become a high performance athlete in any discipline at the end of your journey and i'm thinking with all due respect to people who listen to this who go, oh God, not bloody Agecroft being mentioned again. It it is a little bit like you know going to a public school. It marks you for life. My first coach at Agecroft was Kev. He was a fantastic coach and a very good high performance coach. But he tended to he tended to give people the basic skill sets that Dennis would then polish if they continued in 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 the sport. So should a coach be a teacher at the beginning? Should a coach? This might be a question for later. Should a coach? Should the relationship be personal? Should they be a friend? Can they be a friend or do they have to have professional distance? Do you need different coaches at different stages of your journey? Like the old Oxford and Cambridge model of the of the term time coach and then the finishing coach before the boat race for the last six weeks when they were down at Putney?
0: I'm going to say that the relationship has to evolve. And it can. I, I think it can be the same person. So From my point of view, as someone who's a teacher and as a coach rowing at school, it was, I actually got to the point where I was very, very good at being essentially a learn-to-row coach. Mm. Guys, this is a rowing boat. This is, you know, this is how you get into it. This is how you avoid falling over. This is what you do with your hands. You know, the, the slogan I had was, all great rowing starts from what you do with your hands on the oars. Mm. um and then everything else comes from there and you t- talk about the sequence and then you start to talk about ratio rhythm and all those things okay but i would say that i often found it hugely frustrating when we reached the end of the year and those athletes that i had brought through from the very very novice year moved on to the next year and i wasn't able to coach them anymore mm and so that was that was very difficult for me. So I would have wanted to have taken them to a more advanced level and keep on coaching them and coach them through. But actually, my experience and I, what could pass for expertise let's let's not overegg the pudding. Expertise is probably the wrong word. But my experience was in taking absolute rank novices up to the point that people that they were people who could row competently and safely and so i think i don't think there is any reason why a coach with enough experience could not be a beginner intermediate and advanced coach but you're going to have to do things differently in each point and that includes having a forming different relationships with beginner, intermediate, and advanced athletes. So the
1: coach in that context is bringing different elements of their skill set and their coaching skill set to the table at different points of of the rower or the crew's evolution. And the example that I'd use would be Kev, who essentially basically taught me to row, but Kev was also the person that we went back to before our first Henley and the times when Dennis was busy and yeah. Kev was also the person that we took I talked to the most about sculling the length of the Thames because he'd done similar things in Loch Ness and various other rivers across Europe yeah. so um and you 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 often see it in professional sports where a tennis player or someone will reunite with their old coach and they they'll talk about going back to basics and rediscovering fundamentals so that that relationship can evolve as long as it's based on a strong, mutually respectful connection, um,
0: I think I think this is like this is an odd thing because if we look at the case studies and the, the th- thing that strikes me or jumps into my head is Andy Murray <coughs> and the very grumpy Czechoslovakian individual who was an exceptional Ivan Lendl. Ivan Lendl. So Andy Murray had the most success that he ever had when he was being coached by Ivan mm.
2: um
0: there was an efficiency and ruthlessness to his play that was really brought out by Lendl, and you know that was when he won the olympics and wimbledon and he had he had his greatest success but there was never a long-term partnership formed so i don't know if that was like fundamentally Ivan e. landor was happy to like yeah i'm going to do this for nine months but i've got enough money i don't want to be schlepping around the world to tennis tournaments anymore i don't know what it was or maybe there was an underlying tension because the two people you know there were two people who didn't necessarily get on and mm-hmm. i think within that there are all kinds of personal relationships that athletes can have with coaches that don't necessarily impact as much as that you might expect them to. Hmm. Um, you know, they, they, you can have not particularly great relationship, a personal relationship with a coach, but it can be a very, very effective working relationship. So I think as long as people, there is a degree of, understanding and respect i think you can have a very productive relationship despite not having a great personal relationship and i think that is one of the fundamental reasons w- the there is always this kind of like tension in the coach athlete relationship the a coach will treat an athlete in a way that a friend would never treat a friend. friend okay. and that, that can lead to significant downstream problems
1: just to add to that you might need different coaching no you're not need is the wrong word it might be beneficial at different stages of your athletic journey or your musical journey because a, a music teacher is is essentially a coach in another name you may need someone at a, at a specific point who can add to the skills that you have to give you further skills. So the the Ivan Lendl thing is a is a is a case in point. I think Andy Murray had been to half a dozen Grand Slam finals, and then when he linked up with Ivan Lendl, he started to win. So yep. you might say that Ivan Lendl's experience and his ability to translate that experience gave Murray um, the tools that he needed to learn how to win himself, yeah. because I, I, I'm not sure that, that winning can be taught, but you can certainly have someone who's been there and done it, who will help you to get over the final hurdle by, by you learning to get over the final yeah. hurdle. yourself. So someone like Kev, who was endlessly patient and didn't mind sitting in a launch with a load of complete novices sending a boat sideways down a river, like a drunken hippo down Socky Hall Street. Um, Dennis couldn't do that because because Dennis's focus was on winning things for the club but when you made the step up and I'm using Dennis as an example because there was there was a definite hierarchical system of stepping through the coaching yeah. um in at, at Agecroft when you got to a certain level Dennis would start taking a look at you and start coaching you and and that's the point where you are you are moving from the fundamentals into you are starting to add other things to your skills besides basic technical or physical ability.
0: Yeah, I th- I, I think that is true. Essentially, um, I would also say that for the sake of the interest and the sort of like continue, particularly in rowing where most people most coaches are volunteer coaches, I'd say actually it's probably better to juggle those roles round every now and again to give people variety and variation in what they do and hopefully maintain their interest and their motivation in continuing to be a coach. Because um, when
1: people because when people hear the same sound relentlessly over and over again, they eventually block it out. Whether that's a that's a heater in the place that they work that they don't even
0: hear is yep. on anymore, or a coach saying the same things to them. Or me with Phil Linnet's voice. Um <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, moving swiftly on. So um okay. that is that is kind of what we think a coach is.
1: A kind of teacher, mentor, guide.
0: Yes. Yeah. With different responsibilities at different stages of an athlete's competitive lifespan.
1: Shall we start asking some of the hard questions about coaching? Like well, I'm I'm
0: going I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say that there is actually something we should add in this, that every single one of our listeners, particularly, Mm -hmm. most importantly, for people who are involved in the water side of things, so whether that's coastal, whether that's river rowing, um, but also it is actually relevant to people in the indoor rowing space, but a coach is anyone that takes control of a training session. And and this is this is whether you agree with that definition or not, if you are in sport in the United Kingdom, you have to live with that definition. Mm. And that actually means if you're a cox in a boat and you're giving all the calls, you're the coach. Yep. If you are the senior rower in the boat, even if it's a cox boat and you're giving the calls. You're saying when the boat's going out, when people are getting in and out of the boat. So if you've got very inexperienced um cocks, you're also now the coach. And um most of all, this means that if you are somebody just comes along and you know, I don't know, maybe you are the significant other of someone who is in the novice eight, for instance and someone says to you can you come out and just look at us and give us a few pointers and you do the whole thing of saying right okay this is what we're going to do this is and you're just literally working from memory of like good novice outings and you set the outing plan and you tell people when to get the blades and when to put the boat on the water you're now the coach Mm -hmm. and the coach comes with some fundamental legal rights and responsibilities. And those responsibilities are that you're actually, the buck stops with you when it comes to the safety of everybody else in that training session. So, and and I, I think that this is not explained well enough to people who become coxes. So, um, and particularly, I'd say at university, when you're getting people who are joining the sport and they're inexperienced coxes or inexperienced steersmen in a boat or steerspersons, should we say, they're now, they're the coach. And if something goes seriously wrong and someone gets seriously hurt or becomes seriously ill as a result of a decision you made or an action you took in that outing, there may be a lot of other people who will get in trouble. There may be lots of people who should have said, you know what, there's no way that I should have let that boat go out alone without safety launch. So like the head of rowing or whatever, X, Y, and Z, there are lots of other people who can get in trouble with that. But you have to accept as someone who is taking control of an outing, you have the responsibilities of a coach legally. And that includes being responsible for the safety of everybody in that outing or training session.
1: I don't think it's something that's actually emphasized enough, the same as if you are sitting in the bow seat and, and making the calls or steering the boat, you are responsible for what then happens to your boat. Um, but it, and that's a really important point to make and following on from that then, it would be fair to say, if we are defining what a coach is, and we've basically spent a long time doing that, because it's quite an interesting and nuanced discussion. A coach cannot exist independently of athletes. So you can't be a coach without a boat, or without a crew, or without a squad. You might be, you might have formal qualifications, but you actually exist ontologically as a coach when you are taking charge of a session, a crew, a squad, a program, or whatever.
0: Yes, essentially. I'm just going to slide off to Google and work out what ontological means, but yeah, fundamentally the coach and and it's my contention that the quality of coach is also dependent on the quality of the athletes they are coaching. There has never been well, no, okay, right. This is again this is insert your own not alls and But, in general, great coaches have always worked with great athletes. Which raises the question, has the
1: coach made the athletes great or have the great athletes made the coach look
0: great? As an athlete more than a coach, I know what my answer would be, but I imagine opinions differ and a great deal of evidence can be brought to bear from both sides and i would also say there are lots and lots of athletes out there who said none of my success would be possible without coach x very true that is Um, true and helen glover and heather stanning would say that about their coach uh i would say a hell of a lot of people who've rode with jürgen would say that about Jurgen. Yeah. Um, what I'm not
2: sure I've ever
0: heard is Jurgen or um, any of the coaches in any who, who've received that kind of praise turn around and say, "Actually, no. None of my success would be possible without the enormous talent and hard work and kind of coachability of my athletes." I've, I've never, I've never heard that conversation that's gone the other way. Now, yeah. I don't know
2: if that's just because we,
0: you know, you don't get interviewed as much as the coach than when you're the athlete. Um, and it's one of those, you know, if if I had like tuppence for every time that uh, an athlete has praised their coach, where the coach hasn't praised the athlete, I'd have six pence. But it's odd that it's happened three times.
1: Yes. And it's really hard to talk with our tongue in our cheek and, and we really don't want to position coaches as being complete parasites who feed on the talents of their athletes, rather than being conduits for um, polishing it and raising it to its highest and most elevated state. Um, but they're not surely Lewin, they're not all just massive knob ends with a megaphone and a launch. They can't be, they must do something. What do they do? What are their res- What are the essential responsibilities of a coach? Besides the legal stuff that we've talked about, so it's what the legal stuff the so in your club is, in your club with your squad with your crew, what should your coach be doing maybe would be a way of looking at it
0: the first i I actually think bizarrely enough, a coach well okay, I'm saying this is a very very disorganized person. A coach needs to have a very organized site. yes, they need to be able to say they need to it's not just a training plan you know again training plans are cheaper than table salt they need to actually be able to say this is when everybody needs to be here and if somebody's going to be late or and they need to get confirmation of that they need to be people who can chase people up who can hold in their head a plan of the week who's going to be where at what time and they need to make sure those people also know it and that's and that is actually a very very difficult job that actually has very little to do with how much you know about rowing Mm. that that just sheer capacity for organization
1: it's it's logistics and pipeline isn't it you need yeah. to be you need to be in contact with the boatman to know what boats are out of commission or what boats are coming yeah. back or you need to be across is there petrol in the launch and and even if that's just as simple as devolving it to Dennis or Kev saying right i need you to make sure that for the sessions that i'm doing with you this week there is petrol in the launch which meant ben and i going to the garage with the can and filling it up that's that's fine but you need to be across the basic logistics of essentially what you might call running a club yeah um or
0: running a squad running a squad and i would say that there is the people who can run a squad and run a club and those people are essential to the health of a club Mm -hmm. and they're essential to the success of a squad and that talent has very, very little to do with being able to coach the sport of rowing or any sport whatsoever. So it's, I I think this is one of the problems and I think where coaches suddenly find themselves, someone who's been designated a coach because they have this ability, suddenly finds themselves out of their depth and through no fault, fault of their own, is getting everything and making a squad that would have not existed without them. And I'm, I'm going to say that absolutely one of the jobs of a coach as an organizer is to facilitate the business of rowing competitively. And without those organizers, all those people who gained such a huge amount from, competing and training and rowing together and the friendships that are formed for life and all those things, none of that would have ever happened without those individuals, but it doesn't mean that individual is a very good coach or even a halfway competent coach. Mm. And that I think is where we have the real problem with like, okay, is this any good? And so arguably, you have to separate the roles of captain of a squad an organizer of a squad or director of the club mm. and coach. I think they are two different skills. And if you have them in one package, that's brilliant. But if you don't, you need to recognize that and you need to support the person who understands rowing to the point where they can coach it really well and free up the person who can organize really well to do those things
1: because there's kind of a chicken and an egg situation when it comes to clubs isn't there because if you are in a successful club or a successful squad you will naturally attract more people who want to row for you but let's say you are starting a club from scratch um and when i joined agecroft it was literally it was a tin shed on the side of the urwell and it's now a gleaming world-class start center with you know squads from masters all the way down to juniors it has outreach in the community and all of those kind of things but you is it a coach's responsibility to grow the squad i know that dennis met every every prospective rower who wanted to row for for agecroft and had a had a chat with them even if and Ali Chapman, a, a captain of a particular squad, had made the first contact, it always kind of got passed upstairs. Um, where's a coach's role in that? Is it the coach's responsibility to, to grow the squad and, and ultimately make it successful? Or is it the club's responsibility to grow the squad and then the coach to make that squad successful?
0: I would say that you have to i'm going to use the example let's go back to um dinosaur rock bands um something apparently happened in the who at some point early in their career after the dynamite keith moon joined them (laughs) yeah they apparently reformed their roles. so everybody the singer was the singer so the guitarist was the guitarist. The yeah. bassist was the bassist. The drummer was the drummer. Yeah. But they turned around and they said, look, you as the guitarist, you actually, you're setting the rhythm for the whole band. Yeah. You're the person who's hitting the beat. Yeah, you're the drummer. Yeah. And Keith Moon, no, and 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 no. John Entwistle, it's mm-hmm. like, you're the guy who does the mounting yeah okay you, you you're actually a person who's just thinking constantly about sort of like the the hummable nature of the song the melodic lines yeah the melodic lines the drummer is almost the guy who's acting like the lead guitarist putting the flash that you know the sprinklings of stardust over the top yeah and then all of that was there and i suppose the singer was still the singer But, you know, as he said, they only hired him because he knew how to fight, not necessarily because he knew how to sing. Yeah, well, it's a fair Uh, (laughs) And so I think it's a similar thing. Everybody in that kind of like athlete, club, coach triangle needs to be honest about what their abilities are. Mm. And they need to say, look, I'm... I can literally go down the boat and say, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. But I don't know what day of the week it is most days. I can't arrange a squad. You've got to have the athletes who say, look, I, I don't want to arrange anything. You know, that's that's not me. I want to come here. I want to sit in a boat. And I want to pull hard on the oars. I want to go for, fast. And I want to get off the water. And I want to go home. And I want to go sleep. I don't want to have to. I want to be told where I have to turn up, when I have to turn up, what I'm doing, or I'm going to go and buy a single sculpt and decide it for myself. I can't arrange other people. And then you have to actually look for that person who is so essential to any club. And I think we've talked to one recently mm. who is actually prepared to sit there and quite enjoys sitting there and putting all the sort of like chronological pieces of the jigsaw together. And saying you this is when we're all capable of training, and this is when, and I know a few people like this who I wouldn't want to coach me particularly, but they're really, really good at getting everybody in the same place at the same time, with a boat, with oars, or with a coach in a launch that's full of petrol. Mm. And get and and none of, and I've had some great races with a person like that in charge even when it was originally it was my idea to to set up that crew and go to that race and it was actually like and then this guy took over and initially i was like what's he doing hang on this is this is my this is my boat i set this up this was my brain chart and the fact was I let him do it because I realized very quickly he was vastly better at it than I was. And this is one thing that I know about myself now is that I cannot organize my way out of a paper bag. I can organize me, I can organize maybe a group of three other people. But beyond that, you know, organizing an eight with a cox and a coach and a launch, I'm I'm no i'm useless and okay. so that is actually someone you have to have and if that person can also coach really well that's great if that person wants to be an athlete then they need to be an athlete if you've got someone who can coach really well but can't do that bit then they need to be supported by okay. someone. Who can.
1: okay great we're going to get on to who sets the agenda for the club, uh, for a given club, not necessarily clubs that we are involved with or have been involved with. We're kind of talking, we're using examples from our own experience to kind of, to flesh out our our Rembrandt's The Coach oil masterpiece. Um, So who sets the training plan? Do you need your coach to be across all things sports science, or do you just need them to know how to use a download
0: button from Pete's plan? I would want. I would want the. I think if you okay. If we come back to let's say Agecroft and Dennis again, because let's face it, Dennis was the most high performance coach either of us have ever had. He, he was like, yeah, he, he's a only winning coach. Yeah, and okay. he's, he's,
1: now, he's he's massively professionally qualified, and
0: yeah, basically. So, I I think once you're getting to that point the fingerprints of the coach have to be all over the training plan you can't just download something from the peat plan from the concept to training guide and just oh well we'll do those sessions on the water and we'll do i don't think that works i think if you look at dennis's old training programs there are such clear things where he's saying this is where we learn to row mm-hmm. this is where we get our like our ut2 work and our mm-hmm. stamina work this is where we're doing high intensity on the ergo this is where we're doing high intensity on the wa- water these are the different types of high intensity that we do so you could see like I, you shared a training program uh with me that you you'd had from Dennis. And I think it was probably quite late in the year. So it's like it was a summer month. But all of the water sessions were not just go out, do like three 1k pieces at 28, 30 and 32, which Mm. that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. It was It was like do starts and then do rolling pieces and like the rolling pieces would get longer and longer and then do more starts and then do more rolling pieces and it was um he he was a big fan later in the year of this of rowing with a rowing in fours yeah power strokes with the the inner tube tied
1: to the eight yeah power strokes
0: and stuff like that so Once you get to that point, ideally, the coach should be putting together the land training and the water training so they mesh together. So it's you you can't, if, if you're a coach and you're just dealing with the weekend training and you aren't really thinking about what's happened through the week when everybody's been off by themselves in the gym, Mm. I don't think that works. I think the coach at the very, very least has to have a very clear awareness of what's happened when the athletes have been off the water compared to what's happened and what does that mean we're doing when we're on the water and also, you know, how that is going to fit into the whole course of the year.
1: Yes. Because Dennis's thing was, how fast you go at Henley is defined by the work that you do in winter. And if you looked at his training programs, and I've still got some of them, and I wish I had a whole year's worth, there was a very clear progression through the um, season. It was almost like a series of stepping stones to certain events, Um, Scullers Head, Pears Head, Four's Head, Head of the River. These were the big ones. The club was set up to be successful. He wanted a successful junior program and a successful women's program and a successful and that meant success at the the the, the regattas that the club defined or the races that the club defined as mattering. But it was all, almost like a series of stepping stones. We were doing this work here and these races here, which will prepare us for this work here and these races here, which will prepare us for uh, you know yep. this work here and these races here. Our objective is the Jackson at um, head of the river. Our objective is to win Henley and preferably get two or preferably three boats there and to win women's Henley. To do that, we have to do well at Met, Met, Wallingford, Marlow and Durham, which means that we have to do this work here. So when we get to here, we were now doing this work. It was incredibly detailed. It was like a, it was like a map of progression building through the season, but and this is kind of maybe a question for later about who sets the agenda for the club that was set up for the ambitions of agecroft yeah. which which were as head coach and el presidente for life what he felt we should be aspiring to and achieving as a rowing club now who sets that in in dennis's case i'm sure that agenda was set with people like steve and Kev and, and various other people but who sets the agenda for a club? Should it be the coach? Because you might end up at a um a smaller club, and the coach might go, we're gonna do Jackson ahead of the river, and we're going to do um, we're going to win the Brit at Henley, and there might not be the the people in the club to actually do it. So who should be setting the agenda?
0: The coach, the committee, a combination of the two? Well, I th- I think this is what what we talked to Michael about was the mm when you get a complete imbalance between the ambitions of a club and the resources, whether those are human or physical resources within the club to enact those ambitions, you have a real problem. So when you have someone like Dennis or I would say James Knight, who is incredibly good at saying, right, this is this club, this is the boats we have, this is the personnel we have, this is what we can, this is like an absolutely realistic goal, this is a bit of a stretch goal, and if everything goes perfectly throughout the entire season and everybody commits to a full 10-month training program, we might get to qualifiers yeah okay or you've got dennis that that would be like james knight's point of view dennis says right well we've got four guys who are sub 610 Mm -hmm. we've got another four guys who are sub 620 then we've got a collection of maybe pushing 12 to 16 rowers who are between 625 and 7 minutes and we've got this amount of skill and this amount of boat moving ability. Having that guy who is both a coach, a club administrator or club leader, Mm. and someone who is in a position where they can set the agenda is incredibly valuable and important. And whilst it can lead to an absolutely monomaniacal focus, that very few other people, you know, if we're looking at Spitfire, it's one of those things, every committee meeting, it's like, okay, what sort of races should we be targeting over the next three months? Where are we going to go? And we sort of like, I like going here. I like going there. We're not thinking about winning. We're just thinking about that's a nice it's place it's, to go. running. It's a day like, out. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, or for me, it's like, I don't really want to drive three hours there and back when i have got to go to work the next day hmm. um and so you know different people have different attitudes but when you do have one person who can coach so they understand the abilities of the crew they understand the the, the structure of the season yeah they understand and they have the authority to say we are doing this you get a focus that leads, I think, very rapidly to results. When you divide up all those things, when you divide up the role of the organiser, the role of the the person who has the vision, the person who has the understanding, and you, you don't have that clear focus, I think that's where you get club politics. But you can also get a much more cooperative and communal idea but you're probably not going to go quite as far yeah okay that's fair enough
1: um just to kind of move it along the coach is responsible for training we'll come on to how much a coach is responsible for your own personal physical and technical development in a little bit is the coach solely responsible for crew selection either either as among squads, among crews and for races, or should that ever, should that ever be something that is thrown open to the crew who wants to row with who or thrown open to the committee? Well, so-and-so hasn't been here for six months, but he's coming back in time for, when you get people parachuted in. um, How should a coach be looking at selecting crews? Is it his decision alone or should you throw it open to the floor? And which uh, I'm smiling because I, I I think people should just be told what crew they're in um and what squad they're in or is it I actually is it self-selecting? you wouldn't have a sub 610 rower rowing with a with a 630 rower, although you and I did um but generally you you, you would have it people would end up where they're supposed to be based upon the scores they can pull and their and their technical ability in a boat to move the boat, you would
0: hope. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's really, again, if you, this is the point again, it depends on, I think the experience and ability of the coach to make good decisions. Yeah. So, and, and that, and I think through selection also, this is where you cannot not be a good organiser because if you are coaching to the point where you are going to be selecting a crew you have you can do the kind of like just like finger in the air you know I, the the mind of god um the coach's eye say it's going to be him it's going to be him it's going to be him and it's going to be hit, and I will brook no arguments. And it's like, you've just <laughs> picked four stroke ciders. You know. You do? no, no, it will be fine, will be fine. Um, but you actually need to be able to collate evidence and put that evidence together in a way, not least of which, because you're going to have to justify your decision. And then you're going to have to justify your decision when it doesn't work out. When people, you know, hmm. sooner or later, you can put together a crew And they're going to lose a race that they were meant to win. And you're going to have to say, I still made the right decision, even if the outcome wasn't there. To do that, you've actually got to be really organized and you've got to have everybody's ergo scores, everybody's kind of, you know, what they can do in a pair, what they can do in a four, all the seat racing. And that takes a lot of organization and that takes a very kind of tidy mind. But if your coach isn't that person, you are going to have to do that thing where you do have a, a mutual decision about who's in the boat, who's not in the boat. And that can be, you know, and I, th- I think rowers can have very negative experiences from that. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, even rowers who are left in the boat but they're looking, Oh my God, that guy's just gone. It's like, I've been following, I've been following his rhythm all season and they've chucked him out of the boat because X and they've replaced him with this other guy who I I'm just like, I just don't think this is as good. And then you don't say anything because it's a good crew decision. And then you lose races. Yeah, think you could have won. Um, Mm -hmm. That is, that's a real problem. I've been in that boat. I've been, I've been in that eight.
1: So let's flip that round, and let's say let's not look at it from the perspective of a coach. Let's look at it from the perspective of a rower. As a rower who wants a fair shake, what elements do you want your coach to be able to say he looked at in selecting his crew? It can't just be Test scores, or should it be test scores, training trajectory, technical ability, ability to work in certain units within the boat? So certain, so two certain people might work better in rhythm and in tandem than two other certain people. Um crew compatibility, like do, does everyone get on, or are there fist fights when there's on the water? And the reason why I'm I'm saying this, and and this is No names, no pack drill, but he was called Simon Charles. He would basically vanish for about three to four months every year because he had a high pressure job, a legal job. But he would always be in the stroke seat of the eight for Henley because he set the best rhythm and he always slotted back in and he always did the tests leading up and he always performed very, very well. But that other guy who was then bumped back in the boat would be kind of going, oh, And then you get the thing of a coach has his favorites, he has his boys or he has his girls or or her girls who've been great for him and who've built the club up and all of the rest of it, but there comes a time where you might move your focus from the Thames Challenge Cup to the Brit, where some of your favorites who have done great work for you suddenly don't make your final four and you have to explain it to them so what what does a coach need to have to do that besides obviously the the mind of a lethal uh, the cold mind of a lethal assassin balls of steel and all of the data to hand
0: i think a lot of it is about all the data to hand i mean okay i'm gonna i'm gonna say i think we're talking very much about a high performance coach there um a little bit yes there was something that was written on the wall of the maystone and victor boathouse by James Knight when he was coaching the juniors there, that I thought was incredibly, I, I've remembered it always, which is selection will be based on attainment, attitude and attendance. So he's, he's and and you know, that was literally written outside. In, I mean, it's in, in chalk, but it's on chalk on like wooden slats. So it wasn't going anywhere. Um, you'd have had to pressure wash it off and so right from september when he was talking about where we're going to race in may june july when it's kind of like sun's out guns out rowing he was saying this is who i'm going to choose to put in what boat, and it's not necessarily about your test scores it's it's about who has been the best club rowers those are the people who i will try and build the best boats around the boats that i think are going to have the best chance of winning um and i think that that is an incredibly valuable thing to do which is to start out and state your principles yeah. so everybody is absolutely sure of where they stand and i would say i would also say dennis in his own way did that he basically said it's it's my job to make sure this club puts out the fastest boat that can possibly row down the track for five days in a row at Henley, and oh, okay four days in a row in some events and i will put the rowers in it who i think will make that happen and And by and
1: large his track record showed that he got that pretty much spot
0: on he made that decision pretty well now you know you you can kind of turn around and say well that meant that some people had their feelings deeply hurt that meant that some people did not achieve their lifetime ambitions, but it also meant that other people did achieve their lifetime ambitions and didn't just make it to the Saturday or the Sunday again before getting bumped out by a bunch of Americans or Leander or a bunch of Oxbrooks old old boys or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. The goal was Win Henley,
1: and ultimately the data and the end results supported his decisions yeah but also beyond that and this comes into the question of of, of can a can a coach set the culture of the club um, his decisions meant that people like us got a chance to to put together a g- good seasons by following his lead and the lead of of, of the of the of the crew above us we got a chance to then go to henley which so he could he could not only point to the fact that his his overall aims had been a success but generally the level of the club as a whole had risen um commensurately with it so it wasn't just like he sacrificed everything for one boat because he got three boats to henley and then four boats to henley and he got not one boat doing well ahead of the river, but he got three boats doing well ahead of the river and women's head of the river. And and the women actually winning Henley be, Henley women's before the men actually won Henley women's, which led to championships medals, which led to, which led to, which led to. Which led to. So um, you could argue that the data and the results and the fact that the whole club, all, all ships are, are, are brought up on a rising tide, he made the right calls.
0: Yeah. Um I I think that okay, so okay, you can always turn around, you can run the counterfactuals, oh but what if he'd actually just gone with the eight that year? And it's like maybe they'd have won. We don't know. Um maybe that was just a thin year for rowing that they run. I I'm, I'm not saying it was because hmm. that's like completely disrespectful to the guys who won and I I um you wrote, you I have a respect yeah. for them. Um there are always these counterfactuals mm. but i think this comes down to the the concept i think is very very important particularly in high performance running coaching coaching which is precedence and you can see this in the gb squad or mm. not necessarily the gb squad but the lower reaches of the gb squad it's very hard to break into the squad you've got to demonstrate your abilities for many years in a row mm. in order to get in there. Or well, you've got to demonstrate that your abilities are absolutely head and shoulders above of anyone else who's who you're competing with to sit in like the golden seats. Um, and so when you say c- coaches have their favorites, mm. you can also say that coaches... Have people who have demonstrated to them time and time again that they can perform. Yeah, and I think coaches do rely on that. I and I'm I'm not going to say that's right. I'm not going to say that's wrong, but I think there is within rowing coaching a sense that in any any kind of like continuing club culture where there is a continuing cast of characters the coach is always going to go back to the same people to a certain extent unless it's absolutely demonstrably obvious that they're, they're just not moving the boat they're not pulling the scores anymore um and actually or they're not motivated anymore then at that point the coach will turn around and say, okay, we need to bring someone else in.
1: Hmm. Yeah. There, there's a, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily favoritism because they like them more. It's they have their favorites because they're, they become their favorites because they previously demonstrated that they can perform at the level that is being asked of yeah, them at, at very much that so. point. Um, Which, which is, I wanted to come on to the question of can a, cl- a coach set a culture, because what you talked about James Knights's um, you know, the, the, the principles that he put upon the wooden slats outside of Spitfire, uh, s- sorry, Spitfire, it could no, be. It's Maidstone. It's Maidstone. No,
2: it's,
1: sorry, sorry. At, at, at Maidstone, um, are very similar to Ali Chapman's when he took over our squad and our crew, um, turn up on time, we on the water at eight o'clock. So that means we're here for 745 and it's hands on at 750. And the, so he put in hard non-negotiables in terms of principles, you will be selected upon test scores, upon um, attainment and development throughout the course of a, of a period of time, and also crucially on attendance. So if you, uh, so if you, and it comes to some, you said that, that, that I really wanted to pick up on the idea of being a good club rower. You turn up, you support the goals of your crew, of your squad, of your club. You support your club. You are a good club rower, not you. You are a good club rower. You are good for your club because yeah. you are, because, because this is the important thing. I'm, I'm asking about whether coaches can set character and culture because a club is not, it's not the boats. It's not the buildings. It's not the gym equipment. It's not the launches. Um, it's not the fleet. It's the actual people in it and the attitude of the people in it and how they relate to the people around them. So the 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 club environment of Agecroft wasn't the brand new world class start centre or the nice new Vespoli that we were allowed to look at occasionally as it lay under glass waiting for better rowers to use it. Um, it was in. It was in people following certain principles turn up on time because it's respect for yourself and respect for your crew um show up and do the work uh don't miss tests if you do miss tests come down and do them or send photographic evidence that you've done it and so on and so forth you know treat people in the way that that the club expects you to treat them so there are certain non non-negotiables in agecroft's case that was very much set by dennis you know agecroft as a club and we have to remember that even to this day, it's one of the best and fastest clubs and most successful clubs in the UK, including the Thames, the Thames clubs. It's certainly the yeah. fastest in the in in the north. That character, committed, competitive, driven. Came from the top down, but everybody else took it on as that's how you do rowing, from basic watermanship and boat etiquette to, to how you lift the boats off the racks, to logging things with the boatman, to all of those things. It might have initially come from Dennis. And, you know, I think it's maybe good in a high performance coach that you strike a little bit of fear into the hearts of your of your of your men and women. Um but can a coach Propagate a culture, or do, or does the culture of the club reflect how the coach? So, if the coach is lackadaisical and doesn't really give a shit, will that then rub off on the rowers, so they then won't give a shit? You know, is I guess is kind of what I'm asking. What What's the role of the of the coach in setting club culture, and is it also the responsibility of the squad, the club, the other people to take it on and make it a healthy
0: culture? I'm, I'm going to come back to the, the thing I said about there are there are different roles that hopefully within a club are held by one person. So it's ideal if your coach is a leader of men, hmm. um, a perfect understanding uh, understander of the rowing stroke and a communicator of the rowing stroke. Yeah it hope it's brilliant if they are a qualified sports physiologist who understands how the aerobic system can be trained and it's really helpful if they are a brilliant organizer as well but i think the culture of a club comes from the leaders within that club now ideally you want the leader of that club or that squad to be the coach that that's brilliant because then you don't get conflicts you don't get divergence of vision from the person who's saying we're doing this training to the person who who tell essentially tells everyone what to do and sets that culture and so the example i'm thinking of is a guy called james parker who going back to my days at furnival now, James James is not the world's greatest thrower. He's not the world's greatest coach. If he if he could if if you asked him to, you know, explain the rowing coach, it's like, chap, you come forward, you you lift your hands to the catch and you smash the legs on. And then like it just and you do it again and again and again and you, you try and do it faster than the other guy. Okay, because I'm I'm from Zimbabwe, okay? Um, and every so often you, you call him like, hey, and yeah, I'm from road deep, no, uh, Zimbabwe, we call it Zimbabwe now, definitely Zimbabwe. <laughs> not, not road, no, no, not, not, not that place, not, not, not that not place, Rode- not that
1: place starting with R, no, no, no.
0: Um, and he, he was, like, but the thing was, he was a leader, and he set the culture of that squad. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he he I, I spoke last year about David De Villiers, a crewmate of mine who who passed altogether too young and I met up with these guys and I met up with that uh, members of that crew and James was there and so james is is very much he's he's your typical Saffa, zim um kind of london dwelling expatriate he's larger than life he's got all the stories um et cetera et cetera But the thing that he said that was actually really surprising to me was that he like every single week on a Friday, he got everybody down to do a test piece because we weren't like, you know, we were all early in our careers as rowers. We were like improving really fast. So everybody on a Friday did a 2K piece. Okay. And he literally, and then there'd be Wednesday, training session a saturday and a sunday training session and he'd literally taken an attendance register of everybody he had a spreadsheet and this was the guy who was just like okay there are the stories i want to tell are just
2: completely
0: unacceptable They, they are not i'm not prepared to put them onto the podcast we've said some pretty salty things but trust me this would be a lot saltier Okay. And then but actually the thing was he was doing the same thing as um as James Knight. He was saying there's a culture of attendance. So you've got to turn if you turn up to all the training sessions, I'll put you in the fastest boat. If you if you're kind of like cutting back on the booze, and like everybody there was in their twenties, they were all kind of like, you know what? We're like there's a balance to be struck here between how much we're enjoying life in London being a single man and how much we're wanting to go faster in a boat. And so it's like, if you're cutting back on booze and you're doing some training through the week and your 2K test is better than it was last week, you're in the, you're going to get in the boat. Um, so it was that attitude, attendance and attainment and actually because we kind of made him boat captain he set that so you i think you need you need people who are natural leaders even if they even if they don't really know that much about rowing you know what you know it's like they're not like brilliant rowers they're not brilliant coaches but you have to have someone who is going to set that culture and then on the other side of it you've got to have everybody who's going to respond to that culture you've got to have both sides it's like it's like a yin and a yang situation you've got you've got to have um that kind of yeah you the culture comes from both sides it comes from the top down but you have to have the bottom up you have to have people buying in um and you also have to have people to get the message from the top and then lead it from the bottom.
1: Yeah, that's what I was kind of trying to drive towards because because Agecroft was essentially made in Dennis's image. And this is not disregarding the contribution of people like Kev and Steve and the, the people that were there, but we took it on as it was tough, uncompromising, committed, club-centric focus, competitive. It had good values about etiquette, about watermanship, about safety, and all of those kind of things. And every every agecroft rower that I know that still rows, um, still rows like that. I still row like that. I still I still want to do things in the agecroft way, from from hands on to organizing the session to, to to what have you. But if Dennis had had those values and no one else in the club had taken them on, firstly it's unlikely he just would have said find someone where else to row. I'm fairly sure. But the reality is that the coach can set the tone but you also have a responsibility as a rower to make your club what you want your club to be. If you absolutely. want it to be friendly and open and, and progressive and helpful and, and all of those things, it's got to come from you as well. And that's the point about culture.
0: Um, I absolutely agree. Um, I would also say that, uh remember when we spoke to Axel Dickinson? Yes. Uh, God amongst men. Indeed. Um, and he said that that was that was like that was the kind of what he tried to instill, instill at hinsky mm. And in the first years there, it just didn't work. He got no buy-in from people. Yeah, he he didn't. You it has to be both there. You can, I mean, it is literally you can be that perfect leader and that perfect coach. And you can get to the top of the mountain. You can wave the flag. You can say charge. You can be charging down the mountain towards the enemy. And then everybody behind you just, you know, they 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 look pretty strong. I think I'm just gonna like, <laughs> I'll be back here. Call me when it's over. Yeah. Um. And so it, it is. I think the culture of the club. You're not going to get a great competitive club culture without people who lead that and exemplify it but you're also not going to get a great competitive club culture without the people who buy into that it has to be both it has to be both. um and then and then it's just and then it's the question of maintaining that club and maintaining that culture, and I honestly don't think it can be maintained.
1: Which is why you, we tend to see clubs go in cycles. We we t- we tend to see clubs go in cycles, and they will have a a purple patch or an imperial patch, and then they will have a dip.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, which is which is part and parcel. Now, I would say that currently, it would seem as though some clubs. Have got very good at ex- at extending that purple patch from yeah. a few years to pushing a decade. So yeah. if you look at Thames recently, you look at Oxford Brooks. Yeah, they they do seem to have. I don't know if they bottled it, but they've certainly been able to continue it through a few iterations. Yes. Definitely. Um, Um, And I don't know enough about any of those clubs to be able to say, this is how they've done it. What I do know, or no, what I have heard is that actually the club culture and the coaching during that period of time has not been perfect at either club Mm. from a sense of within. However, the club, the institution itself has been strong enough and had enough inertia to keep going and keep winning and keep doing the right things. So I think think there is a question of, if you build enough size, if you build enough inertia, you can have enough bottom-up groundswell that when you go through someone who is no longer making the right decisions as a leader and as a coach, whether those are the same people or not, Mm. the machine keeps rolling. Yeah. I I think that's the ultimate goal of any high performance club is to not be, is to be a high performance institution that succeeds because of its institutional practices, not because of the people who are there.
1: Yeah, and we've had a couple of of sporting franchises that have attempted to suggest it's because of their institutional practices that that they were successful. For example, the All Blacks when they won their back-to-back World Cups. But we've subsequently seen that when the people who were maintaining the the institutional infrastructure left, both on the playing side and the coaching side, the institutional um, structure and the momentum that they built up didn't quite carry through. So they're they're looking slightly more mortal now. Um, And you might argue that you could look at something like a Manchester United in the last years of Ferguson's reign when it was quite an aging top heavy squad, but they still kept winning things because they built up this decade of success and this decade of momentum that carried them through for a few more years. One question I'd like to ask is, we've talked a lot about the responsibilities of a coach. What are the responsibilities of an athlete towards their coach? Absolutely
0: nothing. (laughs) Um, You can do what you like, you can be who you are, and you have no responsibilities as an athlete to your coach whatsoever. And uh your genius and brilliance should be recognized on the basis of your 2K score, which does in fact test leadership.
1: Um thanks very sorry, much for uh,
0: that. Yeah, no, sorry, that was that was that was inside voice coming out, wasn't it? Um, oh was
1: that, was, um was that your internal thought process actual actual leaping down, taking control of your tongue and vaulting out into the atmosphere? And um, thank you very much for listening to Broken Us podcast. Um, this has been us on coaching. Well done.
0: Are we actually going to seriously discuss about what the <laughs> the responsibilities of the athlete is being coached? I
1: think we could because both and I, you know, both you and I were obviously geniuses from the moment we first touched an oar and didn't require any anyone putting any time or effort into us. What I'm kind of asking is, and I could use an example from my own you know time, So I once rode in The Sims 8 that had such a severely bent pin that I literally couldn't get the blade out of the water at the finish. And rather than accept that it had a a bent pin, Dennis just said, you need to sort your finish out or you won't row for me anymore. So I, I basically then spent, put pieces of tape on the mirrors by the Ergs and frantically practice my drawing up and tapping down to the point where I could. And then a few weeks later, he came up and said, you know, you said the pin was bent. I went, yes. He went, yes, it it was. But for the next year, all I heard, whether he was coaching me, he could be on the far side of the bay. And I just hear, (laughs) echoing across the, so, so what I'm saying is does the athlete, we all like having a coach alongside us occasionally you maybe didn't. but generally, we like to have someone in a launch telling us what to do. but unless we actually do what the coach is telling us, we won't see a progression. That's what I mean by what what responsibilities do an athlete does an athlete have towards their coach They have to make the changes that they're being asked to make. yes
0: basically yes um
2: okay.
0: well, it's it's a difficult thing it's like you have i think i mean particularly in rowing because rowing is like this very very interlinked team sport Mm. if you're particularly if you're rowing in a four or an eight or a quad or larger boats you have to be prepared to make changes to your stroke that are fundamentally really uncomfortable yeah um and don't really make sense to you. So you might have to row shorter, you might have to row longer, um, you might have to take some of the weight off the catch and put it more into the middle of the stroke, because that is what everybody else is doing in the boat. Mm. The problem comes about, I think, when, again, There is a lack of understanding of, so again, it's coming back to this idea. There are people who you kind of really like having as a coach because they're really good at organizing things or they're a really good leader, but they don't understand necessarily what the athlete is trying to do and they don't necessarily understand that the athlete might have a very, very clear idea of what they're trying to do is very good at communicating what they're trying to do. And the athlete might actually be rowing in the way that's best for them because every, you know, it, it what, what was it? It's Pete Holmes. Every crew will naturally find its own rhythm. Yeah. Every athlete will also naturally find their own best stroke. Yeah. And they will find their own place within a boat. And if you then, as a coach, try and rigidly impose a certain thing on that athlete to make them fit in with the rest of the boat, Mm -hmm. that is, that can go wrong because just, it's like you've got to shorten up or you've got to, You've got to be more rigid and upright at the catch or something like that. I don't know what I, a, I'm just like. A given technical about, call. A given technical call. A given technical, but more than the technical call. It's like you're doing this thing wrong every single stroke. And you're sitting there and saying, No, that's 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 what I'm doing right with my stroke. That's how I'm making my stroke work mm-hmm. because this is my body that I'm working with. Um there has to be, there has to be a a process, particularly when you've moved past that beginner stage, there has to be a process of communication. And this is what I'm saying, what are you trying to do? What do you think you're doing and why? And that can be really difficult when you're coaching eight or possibly even 16 people in two different boats or maybe even mm. three different boats. Let's say, you know, you've got a first four, a dev eight, and a novice coxed four, mm. and you've got an athlete in the dev eight who's expecting to sit down and like draw diagrams with you. That's mm. just like, no, just like, do what I'm fucking telling you. It's not necessarily what the athlete wants to hear, but it's sometimes what the athlete has to choose. Like, right, I'm gonna do everything the coach is telling me until I've got a big enough body of evidence that I can say for certain this isn't working. This isn't this isn't what makes me go fast. This isn't how I row in a race when, you know, we've like we drop Peterborough by two lengths. I was rowing like this, I was doing this when I was winning all my seat races. This is what I was doing, not what you were telling me to do. But the athlete has to, when they're training, when they're working with a coach, they have to accept that's the role that the coach has been given by the club and by the athlete. You know, if you, if you don't want to be coached, go row, go row a single Hmm. steady.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and that's, that's another important point. I think Pete Holmes, Pete Holmes's point was correct. If you put four people together in a quad or eight people together in an eight, and you just let them go out for long enough, they will eventually find the best way of moving that boat that works for them because, because everyone automatically gravitates towards the most efficient mean, but that might take a long time. So the athlete maybe has to recognize that when the coach is telling them to do a certain thing that is uncomfortable or to change a certain thing, the coach is trying to find a shortcut between you are here. And if I give you three years together, you will be flawless, but we can make that happen in three months. If, if I use this from my bag of tricks and this from my bag of tricks to, to, to shorten that process of you finding that most efficient mean together. Would that be a fair way of putting
0: it? I think that yes, that would be a fair way of putting it. But again, you know, we, we talked about, it comes back to the same idea that there is a happy mean between the two. Yeah. There is a, the, the coach is not just a facilitator of talent. They aren't just like, Oh, have you tried this? Maybe, maybe think about doing it this way. Or, you know, here, let me show you this video of Mahe or um, Triggs or whoever. It's just like, let me, it's not just that. At some point, the coach has to have a vision that they're imposing upon the athlete. The Mm -hmm. athlete has to also be willing to have a vision imposed on them. But they've also got to have an understanding of, who they are, what their strengths and what their weaknesses are, and what is the best way for them to perform their own sport. And that there has to be a conversation, there and that's
1: can be, difficult. There has to be a dialogue, and it can sometimes be a difficult one, because coaches are often time-pressed and it's just, for F sake, just flipping do it, and sometimes rowers need an arm around the shoulder. Sometimes they need a kick up the arse. Sometimes they need a pat on the back. And sometimes they need a conversation that the coach might not have time to have in that given point. But I think it's fair to say that what you should expect from your coach is what your coach should expect from you, which is a willingness to try, a willingness to have a conversation. And the fact that you are ultimately you have agreed to be on this journey together to wherever it is that you have agreed that you want to try and go.
0: Yeah, you you, you have agreed to be a coached athlete in a squad. Mm-hmm. And that means you do actually have the responsibility to take on what your coach is saying and try it mm-hmm. out.
1: And try it out. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it, don't you? Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, which is part of our getting back to rowing series, getting back to school, getting back to rowing, please buy us a coffee because it costs us time, money, and we have to pretend to be friends to do this. So um, let's give that a whirl. And maybe next time, I don't know, what should we talk about next and I get back to rowing? Training, the fact that it's always fucking bow that slows the boat down, except when it isn't, and they actually help make it go a lot faster.
0: Um, I think next time, As, as we're going through the journey between September and July, we should possibly talk about why, if you're in a rowing club right now, you're doing the training that you are doing and not necessarily the training that you find most fun. Oh, that will be an interesting and painful one.
2: Yes, buy us a coffee and we'll do another one. That seems like a good place to leave it. Excellent.